noticed uh, last week, and you may be noticing this week, that it feels uh, quite a little bit toasty in here, hopefully quite comfortably warm. That's because we have a new heating system, and uh, we just want to say thanks to Dave Seward for the many hours he's been putting in to get that not only uh, set up, but also get it um, working. So we're very thankful for Dave's work in that. And then just a reminder that at the end of the service, uh, when you're ready to leave, just stand up and then move directly to the doors at the back, keeping a two-meter distance from others as you do that. And then we are meeting again uh, this evening at 6 p.m. 
continuing in Matthew's Gospel, and that will be followed by an online coffee time. I hope you can join in with that. And then also online, on Thursday we have our church prayer meeting, 7.45, and uh, there'll be an email circulating about that. And then just some advance notice for next week, uh, we're going to be beginning a series on the book of Deuteronomy. So uh, quite a big book. You may not manage it all this week, but you might want to have a look ahead at that. We'll be finishing Second Peter this morning, so uh, that starts next week. When we meet together for worship, one of the main things we want to do is get back in touch with what is real. We want to remind ourselves of the truth. Why is that so important in worship? Well, it's important because we glorify God when we set our hearts on the truth. And so this morning, we're going to begin by reminding ourselves of the truth about our future as Christians. If you'll stand with me in just a second, we're going to join in saying some words from Paul's letter to the Philippians, where Paul speaks about the future hope we have in Christ. And then once we've read those verses together, then the musicians will lead us in a song straight after that. So if you'll stand with me, please, we'll read from the end of Philippians chapter 3. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Amen. Yeah. 
Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that we're not trying to find temporary joy and peace for ourselves and then cling to those things for dear life. We thank you that in Christ, we have eternal joy and peace. We have joy and peace that cannot be stolen from us. We have joy and peace that are not going to ebb away from us as the years go by. Thank you that our joy and peace in Christ are not only solid and lasting, but actually they are going to increase. We thank you that the good things you have in store for us will outshine the good things we have now already. And this morning, as we focus on this truth together, will you help us to take it to heart? We know these things in theory, we know them in our heads, but we want these things in our hearts as well. We want to love the solid joy and lasting treasures we have in Christ. We want to love those treasures and those joys more than the joys that are flimsy and the treasures that are temporary. We want to love what we have in Christ more than those flimsy, temporary things this world can give us. So we ask you to come by your Holy Spirit, help us in our weakness, help us in our half-heartedness, maybe. Take your word and bring it to each one of us with new life and new power. And we take a moment quietly to bring our own personal fears to you. We bring our disappointments, our sins, our frustrations, and we lay them before you now. We ask that in place of these things, You will give us new hope and new confidence in Christ and all that he has for us. We pray particularly this morning for Anne-Marie Dillon and her family as her daughter Lucy gives birth this morning in very difficult physical circumstances for her and for the baby. We pray for your great grace and mercy to surround Lucy and her husband Tim, and Anne-Marie, and the baby. And we ask these things with hope in Christ. Amen. We're going to have a Bible reading now which speaks about what God has in store for us, and not only for us, but for His creation as well. 
Steve is going to read uh, from Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, beginning to read at verse 18. Romans 18, 18 to 25. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to the frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. The redemption of our bodies, for, for in this hope, we were served but hope that is seen is now hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. This is God's word. Our next songs focus on the beauty of God's love and acceptance. The fact that in Christ we are accepted and brought near to God. In Christ we face the future knowing, as we've just read, that the best is yet to come. As Christians, our future is a future not of disappointment and loss. It's a future of redemption, freedom, and glory. And that's all because there is a Redeemer for us. Jesus Christ. 
Today we come to the end of Peter's second letter, and in a sense, Peter has come full circle in the letter. He began in chapter 1 by calling us as Christians to pursue godly lives, and that's where he ends the letter too. But the difference is that in between, Peter has spoken about what's to come, the return of Jesus Christ. And now as he brings this letter to a close, he calls us as Christians to live looking forward. So let's read from 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. 
to the end of the letter in verse 18. In the first part of chapter 3, Peter spoke about the day of the Lord. He spoke about the fires of judgment that will come with that day. And that's what he's referring to in verse 11 when he says, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard, so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. This is God's Word. And it's worth noticing how Peter's focus has changed here from the first part of chapter 3. In verses 1 to 10 of this chapter, Peter was responding, you might remember, to scoffers. People who said Jesus was never going to come back to judge the world. In response to that, Peter pointed out that creation has been through catastrophe before. Both the formation of the earth and the flood in Noah's day were events that brought violent upheaval to creation. And those events came about by God's word. And so why would we doubt God's promise to bring fires of judgment on earth in the future? God's Word is just as powerful and effective now as it was at creation, as it was in the time of the flood. So verses 1 to 10 were really a response to the scoffers, to show how foolish they are, to show how foolish anyone is who denies the coming judgment. And of course, those verses were also a reassurance to Christians that we are not daft to live in expectation for Christ's return in judgment. But now, in the second part of this chapter, Peter moves on from assuring us the fire will come. Now he wants us to consider what's beyond the fire. Verses 1 to 18, 11 to 18 are not a warning for scoffers, they're an encouragement for Christians to live with expectation for life beyond the fire. 
as Christians, we don't fear the fires of God's judgment because we know Jesus has already taken God's judgment for us. That's what happened on the cross. That's why we talk so much about the cross. On the cross, God's wrath fell on Jesus so it would never have to fall on us. The cross was God's work of saving mercy. So when we come to Jesus, when we put our faith in him, we come under his shelter. We're safe from the coming fire. Just as Noah and his family were safe from the flood when they sheltered in the ark. So as Christians, we don't fear the fire that's coming, but we do need to live with an awareness that it's coming. And we need to consider what's on the other side of it for us. Peter uses the phrase looking forward three times in these verses. And for Peter, looking forward is not to be a passive thing. For us, it often is passive. We might say, I'm looking forward to warmer weather soon. That kind of looking forward is totally passive. We're just waiting. But Peter doesn't want us to be passive as we wait for Christ's return. He expects us to actively look forward. And he gives us two instructions here to help us. First, he tells us to invest in the new creation, not the old one. And second, he tells us to be mastered by Scripture, God's new creation word. The first instruction is in verses 11 to 14. Invest in the new creation, not the old one. In verses 11 and 12, Peter repeats what he has already said about the fires of judgment. But now he's saying it with a different purpose. He's not trying to convince scoffers that the fire is coming. He wants Christians to consider what it means for us that the fire is coming. It means this world in its present form is not going to last. And neither will the sinful attitudes and ambitions that are associated with this present world. Those things are headed for destruction along with this present world. And so as Christians, we have to take that into account. If we nurture ambitions and we make plans that are tied to this present world, then we're investing in something we know is going to crash. We might not know when it's going to crash, but it is going to crash. No investor with any sense would sink their funds into a company that's about to go belly up. They might invest in a company that's doing badly, but has some hope for improvement. That might be worth a try. But no one invests in a situation where there is no hope of a return on their investment, and they know it. But that is exactly what you and I are doing if we invest our lives in things that won't survive the coming fire. Instead, Peter says, we're to invest in things that belong to God's new creation. Now, we need to think very carefully about this because sometimes Christians have taken this as an instruction to abandon the world we live in as much as possible. 
to cut themselves off from relationships with non-Christians, to have no involvement in their community, to abandon work, or at best, to treat their work as nothing more than a way to put food on the table, not as something to take pride in or give their best efforts to. The only things worth our time, some Christians have said, are church meetings and Christian relationships, because everything else is for the fire. Putting effort into anything else is the equivalent of rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. It's a waste of time and energy. But is that what the Bible calls us to? Is that what the Bible means when it talks about investing in the new creation, not the old one? I don't think so. And here's why. We saw last week that the destruction that's coming on this world is comparable to the destruction brought by the flood in Noah's day. Back in verse 6 of this chapter, Peter said the flood destroyed the world. But clearly the world was still there after the flood. So by destruction, Peter does not mean total annihilation. He means massive upheaval, massive change, massive purification. And when Peter then talks about the coming destruction of the world by fire, we have to take it in a similar way, as massive upheaval, but not total annihilation. We have to take it that way because that's how Jesus explained it. When Jesus taught about the future, he spoke about the renewal of all things, not the annihilation of all things. You can find that in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. And the Apostle Paul agrees with Jesus. Earlier this morning, we read from Philippians, where Paul talks about the future, but then we also read from Romans 8. We read these words in Romans 8. The creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. The new creation will be this creation renewed, set free from its bondage to decay, the message of the Bible is that God is not going to abandon his original creation. He is going to reclaim it. He's going to redeem it from corruption, cleanse its impurity, renew its decay, and heal its brokenness. The Bible speaks in a similar way about our bodies. Our resurrection bodies will be new in the sense that they'll be free from all of the limitations and frustrations we experience in our bodies now. But our new bodies will still have continuity with these bodies. They'll still be recognizable as our bodies. Paul spoke about that in Philippians, the words we said together earlier, 
And in Romans 8, just a few verses on from these words on the screen, Paul speaks about the redemption of our bodies. And what's true of our bodies is true of all creation. It will be set free from its corruption and brokenness. It will be a place of wholeness and righteousness. It will be what God's creation was meant to be. And so as men and women who look forward to that day, we do not abandon normal things like work, like relationships, like creative enterprise. We don't abandon those things because we can be sure there will be a place for those things in God's renewed creation. Those things are part of life in God's creation. We expect them to continue in the new creation, but they will be cleansed of sin, of brokenness. They will not be poisoned anymore by greed and selfishness and by the ruthless competitiveness and the revenge that darkens so much of what we do here and now. And so then if we ask, what does it mean to invest in the new creation, not the old one? We could answer the question with the words of an old Bananarama song. It ain't what you do, it's the way that you do it. Investing in God's new creation may not necessarily mean we do totally different things. Yes, we will forsake sinful things, but in most cases, we will continue to do the same human things. But we'll do them with a new outlook, with a new purpose, with a new attitude in our hearts. As men and women who by God's grace belong in the coming new creation, we'll already begin to live new creation lives here and now. Look how Peter puts it here in our passage. Having spoken about the coming fire that will cleanse God's creation of its corruption, he says in verse 13, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. In other words, since you're headed for a world of spotlessness and blamelessness, a world where your conscience is at peace because you're living in harmony with your holy God, since that's where you're going to be, and since that's what you're going to be, begin to be that way now. Does that mean we do totally different things? Does spotlessness and blamelessness only apply to our prayer meetings and our worship services? No, we're to work towards spotlessness and blamelessness in our work practices, in our finances, in our friendships, in our art and design. We have every reason to suppose all those things will go on in God's new creation. We're to invest all those things with new creation life here and now. So let's think about a couple of examples of that. 
How about concern for the environment? That's a part of life in this creation. And it will be part of life in God's new creation, I'm sure. We're certainly not going to care about the environment less then than we do now. But think about environmentalism as it is now. Isn't it true environmentalism has become a kind of religion? Isn't it spoken about as if we human beings might somehow be able to resurrect creation ourselves? If we could just get carbon emissions sorted out? If we could just rid the world of plastics? Aren't we given the impression that our greatest and most urgent problem is our mismanagement of the environment? How does a new creation view differ from that? It differs because we realize the world's greatest and most urgent problems are not petrol and diesel cars. They're not inefficient recycling programs. The world's greatest problems are sin and rebellion against God. It's because of those things the fire is coming. Not because we haven't adequately developed alternative energy sources. As Christians, we do not put our hope in environmentalism. But, because we know God is not finished with this creation... We take seriously our responsibility to be good stewards of creation. That responsibility was given to humanity in Genesis chapter 1. We were commissioned to rule God's earth as stewards under his authority. And God has never revoked that commission. He's never taken it away. And the reason he never revoked it is because he's going to renew his creation. He cares about it still. And so when you and I care for this creation, we're actually investing in the new creation. But so much of today's environmentalism just leaves God out of the picture. It leaves God's new heaven and earth out of the picture. It lives and acts as if this present world is all there is. And so environmentalism ends up revering creation as if it were God. It idolizes creation. And that means while there's much good intention in the things environmentalism works for, a godless environmentalism ultimately does no good. It ends up becoming a false religion, a false hope. And just another part of this world's brokenness. It ends up as defiance of God. We can fix the world's problems. We don't need redemption by Christ. We can do it with treaties on climate change. But as Christians, we care for creation without idolizing it. Without thinking it's our route to saving humanity. We care for creation as stewards who know the owner is going to come back. And when he comes back, we want to be found taking the best care we can of his property. 
We care for God's creation not because we think we can save this present world. We care for it because we want to begin doing now what we will do then in the renewed world. Let's think about a second example of investing in the new creation, not the old one. If there's one thing that's overshadowing the environment as our main concern at the moment, isn't it personal safety? Have you noticed how we all finish our conversations nowadays? We say, well, I'll speak to you later. Stay safe. If environmentalism can become a religion, isn't it true that safety is fast becoming our number one religion? Aren't people living right now as if we human beings can cheat death somehow? We can beat it. If we have the right government policies, if we have full public compliance with those policies, and if we have the right medical breakthroughs. But that kind of mindset belongs to this old creation. It's the same mindset as the Tower of Babel. We can do it. We can overcome our human limitations. We can make ourselves safe. Recently, John Stevens, the director of FIEC, a group of churches that we belong to, John Stevens pointed out that our current fixation with COVID deaths is blinding us to the inevitability of death. Our focus on beating death by COVID is making us forget that death marches on every day as it always has. We are rightly sad that during the last year, 116,000 people in the UK have died from COVID. But do you know how many die every year in the UK from heart disease? 160,000. Do you know how many die every year in the UK from cancer? 166,000. And I mention that not to belittle the number of COVID deaths, not at all. The point is, in our best efforts to beat COVID, we're in danger of imagining we really can make ourselves safe in this world. And that life is all about staying safe. How does a new creation outlook differ from that? Well, a new creation outlook says, yes, I'm to live wisely, not recklessly, but I'm not to fool myself into thinking with the right precautions and the right medicines, I can be safe. And a new creation outlook doesn't believe safety is supposed to be our number one priority anyway. Jesus did not make safety his number one priority in life. He was concerned to do his Father's will. And in his case, that was not safe at all. 
Down through history, millions of Christians have found that serving God and staying safe just don't go together. I heard a missionary speaker once who was serving in a pretty dangerous place, but he told us as he spoke about his work, at the end of his talk he said, I would like you to pray for me. But when you pray for me, don't pray for protection for me. I want you to pray that God will give me courage. That is a life invested in God's new creation. That man knew life in this world is never going to be safe. 100% of lives end in death. If anti-Christian persecutors in the Middle East don't get you, something else will. Like I said, we want to live wisely, not recklessly. But when you and I obsess over our safety, we're not thinking with the new creation in mind. We're living like this present world is all we have. So we better dig our claws into it and hold on for dear life. But the only truly safe way to live is to trust in Jesus and get on with life for his glory. That's the only truly safe life because it's the only life that leads to God's new heaven and earth. A life that's consumed with right here, right now, is actually the most unsafe life. Because people who live that way end up with nothing more than right here, right now. We could go on with other examples. We could think about how this relates to politics, how it relates to national pride, finances, relationships, and lots of other things. One of the reasons we're going to move on to the book of Deuteronomy next week is because Deuteronomy is all about the details of living differently, living in accordance with God's ways rather than the ways of this present world. But for now, the message to us is, as Christians, we're on our way to God's new creation. And we're to live now as new creation people. John Calvin summed up these verses in 2 Peter by saying, if we are looking forward to a new creation, we will begin renewal already within ourselves. Isn't that how we want to be found when Jesus returns? As people already living in ways that belong in his eternal kingdom. Peter knows we need a lot of help and guidance if we're going to become investors in eternity. Peter knows that living that way means swimming against the current because most people around us are not living that way. So in the second part of this passage, Peter shows us where we can get help. He instructs us to be mastered by Scripture. 
God's new creation word. Back in verse 9, Peter has already mentioned the Lord's patience. The fact that he hasn't yet brought the fires of judgment. Peter said God's patience is patience with a purpose. It's so that people will come to repentance. And here in verse 15, Peter mentions that again. Our Lord's patience means salvation. And that gets Peter on to talking about Paul. Because Paul says the same things. In verse 15, what Peter has just said is, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. If you've ever read a paragraph in one of Paul's letters and find it difficult to understand, then you can take encouragement from the fact that Peter had the same experience. But notice, too, Peter doesn't say it's all hard to understand. Obviously, the main things are clear. That's why Peter can say Paul wrote the same things as he did about the future. We've seen examples of that in Philippians and in Romans. If, Paul thought, if Peter thought that everything Paul wrote was hard to understand, he wouldn't know that Paul agreed with him. And in fact, Peter knows that what's true of all the writers of Scripture is true also of Paul. He writes wisdom not from himself, but from God. Or as Peter put it in chapter 2, like the other writers of Scripture, Paul writes from God as he is carried along by the Holy Spirit. What is the Bible? The Bible is the God of the new creation breaking into this present broken creation with a life-giving word, a new creation word. Scripture is a word from another world penetrating this world. And so you and I need to pay the closest attention to Scripture if we're going to live new creation lives here and now. And as we notice, that will mean moving against the current. But that is a sign of life, isn't it? It's dead things that float along with the current. Scripture is our guide to swimming against the current with new creation strokes. Scripture is our sure guide as we make our way through this life on our way to the life to come. But look what Peter says about those who don't treat Scripture as a sure guide. In verse 16 he says, some people distort Scripture to their own destruction. There are two ways to read Scripture. We can read it with the attitude of being under its authority. In that case, we read God's Word in order to submit to it. We allow God to rule our lives through His Word. We come to Scripture to be mastered by it. Or, the other way to read Scripture is to come to it with the aim of making Scripture work for us to support our will, 
When we do that, we end up distorting Scripture to our own destruction. In verse 16, Peter describes people who do that as ignorant and unstable. Now, we can be ignorant simply because we haven't been taught. But we can also be ignorant because we refuse to be taught. And that's what Peter has in mind here. He's speaking not about people who want to submit to God's Word but don't yet know it very well. These are people who will never truly come to know it because they just want to twist it to suit themselves. People like that can know a lot about the content of Scripture, but they will never truly understand it. Because they don't come to Scripture to have their lives and their thinking mastered by Scripture. They come to Scripture to master it. Peter's probably thinking here of the false teachers he spoke about in chapter 2. Their teaching introduced destructive heresies. Their teaching exploited people. It was teaching motivated by greed. But the reason those false teachers had such success was because they found others who were ignorant of Scripture and who were therefore unstable in their faith. Those unstable people were easy prey for false teaching. They were easily distracted from the need to look forward to God's new heaven and earth. And that's what Peter's challenge is in verse 17. He challenges us to live in ways that belong to that new creation without being distracted from it. Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. Earlier in the letter, Peter said his readers are firmly established in the truth. In chapter 2, he contrasted those people with others who are unstable. And here in verse 16, he's just mentioned those unstable people again. They're not firm in their knowledge of the Scriptures. And so here in verse 17, when he speaks about the secure position of his readers, I think he's again talking about being firmly established in the truth. These people are solid in their knowledge of the Scriptures, but they're to be on their guard. They're not to be complacent about their firm standing in the truth. They're to recommit to both increasing their knowledge of Scripture and equally important, they're to seek to be increasingly mastered by Scripture, to have their lives ruled by this new creation word. As you and I are increasingly mastered by Scripture, our lives will become more invested in the new creation than they are in the old one. We'll be less likely to be carried away by the error of the lawless. And, in verse 18, we will grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You and I read the Bible not primarily for information, although we do need to know the information, but we read Scripture primarily to know Jesus. 
He's the one who meets us in Scripture. So as we move towards God's new creation, as we seek to invest our lives in that new creation, let's do what we need to do to make sure our lives are mastered by Scripture. When that is happening, we will make investments that are increasingly wise. We will increasingly avoid foolish errors. We will grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we will bring through our lives, we will bring glory to him now and forever. Just as we close, maybe you feel that you are ignorant of Scripture, but it's not because you want to be. If you want to get a better grasp of Scripture as a whole, I encourage you to read it as a whole. And alongside that, I recommend this book. It's called God's Big Picture by Vaughn Roberts. It's well worth your time getting it and reading it, probably rereading it. If you tackle this just a few pages at a time, it will give you a really good sense of the Bible's storyline from beginning to end and how it all fits together. If you'd like a copy and you're not in a position to get one yourself, just let me know and I'll be happy to get you a copy. And then when it comes to individual books of the Bible, again, just ask and I'll try to point you to something. And you might want to try a series of videos called The Bible Project. Just go to YouTube, type in Bible Project, and then the book of the Bible you want. It will give you a seven or eight minute video outlining and explaining that book of the Bible. This week, you could try Second Peter, you could try Deuteronomy as well. Of course, those videos aren't a substitute for reading the Bible itself, but they are a great aid to understanding the Bible. And whatever steps you and I take to know Scripture, let's remember always, we do it to be mastered by Scripture. Not to tick off passages on a chart, not to do well in Bible quizzes, we want to know Scripture to be mastered by it, to grow in our knowledge of Jesus Christ and to better invest our lives now in the new creation that's coming. Our last song reminds us, as Christians, we belong not to this present day. We belong to the day that is to come. Let's live looking forward to that day.
To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen.
Let your key.